On the noisy terrace of a theatre bar, actor Jane Horrocks told me about the moment she inspired dramatist Jim Cartwright with her talent for mimicking fabulous divas like Judy Garland and Marilyn Monroe. She remembers exactly where it happened. In my back garden, I don't know whether I did an impersonation for him, but I told him that I could do impersonations. I think I must have actually done a few for him. And he said, oh, I'll write a play about that. And I had no idea what the format would be. So two years later, when he wrote it, it was quite a surprise that my character hardly spoke. <laughs> Forget your troubles, come on, get happy. You better chase all your cares away. Shout hallelujah, come on, get happy. Get ready for the judgment day. In the rise and fall of Little Voice, directed by Sam Mendes, Horrocks played a shy girl who drowns out the mess of family life by shutting herself away in her bedroom and listening to her dead father's record collection. She emulates his favourite performers, taking refuge in songs from his past. One of the things which interests me about the rise and fall of Little Voice is that Jane Horrocks met Jim Cartwright when she was appearing in his earlier play, Road, at the Royal Court Theatre. Later, when he'd written Little Voice especially for Horrocks, the Royal Court turned it down. In this look back over 50 years of the National Theatre for BBC Radio 4 Extra, I'm hoping these kinds of stories illustrate something of the way the theatre works. I'm Daniel Rosenthal. I've been writing a sort of biography of the place. It's not unusual for new plays to be shopped around, and numerous scripts rejected by the National have become hits elsewhere. The circumstances in which a certain writer or a director or even an entire cast come together for a production are often a combination of aspiration, pragmatism and pure chance. The Rise and Fall of Little Voice premiered in 1992. That year, in the midst of Richard Eyre's tenure as artistic director, audiences could also see Pam Jemz's new version of Chekhov's Uncle Vanya with Ian McKellen and Anthony Sher, Rogers and Hammerstein's Carousel, choreographed by Kenneth Macmillan, who sadly died during rehearsals, and Street of Crocodiles, a piece inspired by a Polish writer and dramatised by Theatre to Complicite with a surreal blend of music, text and movement. Shakespeare? There was A Midsummer Night's Dream, featuring a large pool of mud and Timothy Spall's bottom. In the same 12 months, director Stephen Daldry reinvigorated J.B. Priestley's and Inspector Calls with film noir lighting and a stunning out-of-scale set. The range of the repertoire in the early 1990s provides a snapshot of what a large, well-funded institution can achieve. Actor Henry Goodman was appearing as a cutthroat New York attorney in Angels in America. It was a play about the early years of the AIDS crisis and, as Goodman told me, during rehearsals nobody knew how audiences were going to respond. I mean, you know, we didn't know we had a success on our hands. And that's what The National's all about. The, the, the success of the directors is not just big swanky productions but the, the ability to hit sort of zeitgeist issues, great issues of the day and there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that that is the greatest play of that decade if not longer. With Angels in America, 
Writer Tony Kushner put right-wing politics, illness, gay relationships, religion, and rough sex under the microscope. Because of its subsidy, the National can approach difficult subject matter like this without commercial pressure to employ a starry cast. The pressure of marquee, as it's called in the theatre in the West End, the pressure of getting so-and-so off the telly, the pressure of making something successful as a product before it starts is different anywhere else. Um, there's something about being at the National which encourages in the spaces, opportunity to find the balance between the vanities of theatre and the virtue of it. Because the, without the vanities, nothing would happen. But finding the way to stage it, what I remember the battles being about is how to stage, how to shape this thing so that the flamboyance of the staging did not undermine the lucidity of the argument. It's, n it's not impossible, but it's, it, it's more difficult to do that in a hard-assed, bums-on-seats, West End-seeking winner to subordinate egos, attitudes, aspirations to... Um, yeah, sorry, why not? Integrity. British people want a country with a sense of community. The year 1993 saw the culmination of a trilogy of plays by David Hare. They want a Britain that is whole. Racing Demon, about the Church of England, Murmuring Judges, about the criminal justice system, and The Absence of War, based on Hare's observations of the Labour Party leadership during its unsuccessful general election campaign the previous year. There's a long list of writers who have developed an association with the National, none more fruitfully than Hare, who has continued to use its stages to address contemporary issues, from rail privatisation to the global financial crash. But this next story is a particular favourite of mine, because it brings together a very special American playwright and a unique British institution. They began by Arthur sending me a play called Gelberg, that's director David Thacker talking about Arthur Miller. He said, I haven't shown it to anybody else. Could you read it and let me think? What do you think? The two had forged a strong working relationship over a number of years. So I read it. I phoned him up straight away and said, um, how long has this been going on in your mind? He said, oh, about 40 years. It seemed to be dealing with stuff that he'd never directly dealt with his own Jewish identity, and even though he does talk and write about it in other ways, never in plays. I said, well, I think it's completely fantastic, this play, um, um, and I'd just love to do it. He said, well, you can do it. Where do you want to do it? Just find out where to do it. I said to Arthur, I think the thing we should just do is take it to the National Theatre. Thacker was the first recipient of this very personal play, which became Broken Glass. Some of Miller's best-known plays, The Crucible, A View from the Bridge and Death of a Salesman, had been successfully revived at the National, but this was a new play about Sylvia and Philip Gelberg, a married Jewish couple in Brooklyn in 1938. Thacker thought about casting Margot Lester and, perhaps, Henry Goodman. I contacted Henry and I sent him the play 
he reads it. He finds me and says, I've got to play this part, I've got to play this part. This is the part I've wanted to play all my life. So first thing the next day, Henry comes, sits down, and I read with him. After about 15 minutes, we're both in tears. Goodman agreed to play Philip Gelberg. David Thacker had developed a rapport with Miller, which he brought to Broken Glass. It was something like the third or fourth show that, that he did. And maybe it's presumptuous, but I think he, he gave Arthur an appetite and a way of doing his plays that was slightly different than the way he'd seen them done in America. I actually remember him referring to that. Miller referring yeah. to that. They wouldn't play like this in the States. You know, things like that. Then, very interesting turn of events. Although Miller's stock was pretty low in America, plans for the world premiere at the National were scuppered. It would now open first in New York with another director. Problem was, Miller didn't have much confidence in that production and wanted Thacker's advice. They both knew Broken Glass had problems. By this time, because we'd got such an easy relationship with each other, I felt able to to say these things without having to keep saying, I know you're the greatest writer of the 20th century, blah, blah, blah. It just he wanted to know what I thought about these things. The London cast went into rehearsal with Goodman as Philip and Margot Lester as his wife, Sylvia. She has become paralysed from the waist down, leaving her doctors baffled. Tell me what Dr Hyman said. He thinks it could all be coming from your mind, like a, a fear of some kind got into you. But I'm numb. Can I tell you what I think? What? I think it's this whole Nazi business. Look, they're smashing up the Jewish stores. Look, the streets are covered with broken glass. Yes, but you don't have to be constantly... Well, I can't move my legs from reading a newspaper. He didn't say that. I'm wondering if it's he's ridiculous. too involved. ridiculous. You'll talk to him about it tomorrow. Arthur Miller arrived to see how work was going. I mean, he was... Um, an attractive man. A lot of the women found him very attractive and sexy. And here he was in his pot-bellied sort of 80s, still wowing them. And people were just, wherever he went in the building, they would just sort of melt. It's just ridiculous, but that's the sort of impact he had. Margot Lester. God, there's no mystery about what Marilyn saw. He's so fantastic. He was so attractive and wonderful. He go, oh, dear, hello, dear. He was, like, lovely. He liked being in rehearsal every day. He was avuncular and friendly and sort of, you know, tall and smiling and genial all the time. And he said to me one day, I was playing this very uptight guy who, who was going through terrible trauma being a Jew in 1938. We don't actually know, but it's almost certain that he dies. He has a heart attack and dies in bed, having been through this wonderful moving story. And he took me aside one day and he said to me, Henry, you know, going through this trauma where the guy realizes there are Chinese Jews. Yeah, I heard of that. And they look Chinese. And he said, you know what, Henry? You can laugh when you discover how tragic life is. <laughs> that this guy, when he says there are Chinese Jews, suddenly realized, why am I so uptight? That's funny. There are Indian Jews, there are Chinese Jews. We're everywhere, you know, I, I don't have to carry this burden with me. And that sort of balance of humour and humility was amazing in, um, in a man of such in international stature. And that's what the national does to people, real warmth, human warmth, you know. 
I've been tiptoeing around my life for 30 years, and I'm not going to pretend. I hate it all now. The British premiere at the Littleton had greater credibility than the world premiere on Broadway, and Miller adored the Nationals' version. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We go off on tour, and he rocks up in, I think it was Sheffield. We're on tour in Sheffield, and Arthur Miller rocked up. Because he was so attached to the production and invested in us. I've got a picture of him somewhere, sat in the dressing room, looking exhausted, but really pleased, because the reaction of the audience was always so positive. So there was no doubt in our minds that it was connecting. The play was landing, as he would say. And land it did. Henry and I used to joke that as soon we were doing the Dancing on Ice version, we did every single version of it that could be done on radio in the West End. Then we toured it, you know, and filmed for TV. It kind of dominated our lives for a couple of years. Now, from one American great to another, Stephen Sondheim and a little night music. On Radio 4's Kaleidoscope, Judy Dench spoke to Paul Allen about playing an actress and singing in Sondheim's musical. Don't you love fast? My fault, I fear. I thought that you'd want what I want. Sorry, my dear. But where are the clowns? Quick, send in the clowns. Don't bother. They're here. The character in Little Night Music, Desiree, is, is, is an actress who's, um, I mean, we never really know quite how good an actress No, I suspect not too hot not myself. Not too hot, yeah. She's now on a Terrible tour. Terrible tour. tour. Yes and one suspects the provincial theatres of Sweden are no better than those of anywhere else, maybe slightly worse. But um, a lot was made of the fact that you were singing in this, and of course, you know, you've sung quite a lot before, mm, and, and, I have. In, in cabaret and so on. I suppose you do, however, in uh, Little Night Music, have the most sharply profiled individual song in it. Yes, well, the it's, the, it's the equivalent of the quality of mercy is not strained. Mm. I mean, they'll sing it for you if you don't feel like it that night. Well, they can't with you, though, can they? Because you stop Because I kind of caught, it, <laughs> caught up with them a bit, yes. <laughs> yes. Well, they, they don't have the advantage of having to play their scene beforehand with Frederick when he actually turns her down. How do you make a song like that work? just by carrying on. In, well, in, in many musicals, songs just stop shows, don't they? Yes. I mean, I remember Hal Prince saying to me, unless a song takes the story on, there's no point in having the song. He said to me, there's no difference between speaking and then singing. And he said, there must not be. At that stage, when she suspects that it's all going to be right between them, he actually says, you know, I love my young wife. And, and she then realises that she's totally mistimed something, totally mistimed it. So it's hard to face them and say the next sentence. And that's why the music has to start then, in order to cover a moment that she, she doesn't know what yet the next thing is to say. Just when I'd stopped opening Finally knowing the one that I wanted was 
entrance again with my usual flair sure of my lines no one is there well I watched this well into the run I wasn't there at the first night or anything like that and quite often if you come to some shows late in the run you get more or less half performance but I have to say that on on that particular occasion you broke my heart and oh, I'm glad <laughs> <laughs> I thought that you'd want what I want sorry my dear but where are the clouds quick send in the clouds don't bother they're here. Desiree, I should never have come. I'm sorry. To flirt with rescue when one has no intention of being saved. Please try to forgive me. But where are the clouds? There ought to be clouds. Well, maybe next year. Judy Dench in Sondheim's A Little Night Music, which played in the Olivier Theatre. The Olivier is often called the giant killer. And the temptation on the Olivier is to say, it's huge, there's people all around, you've got to do something phenomenally amazing. And when we did Merchant, and I stood in the middle of that stage, and the stage was mostly empty, I realised you don't have to fill it with impressive great big structures. The key is to have powerful elements, by which I mean sometimes that's the actor standing in that vast space gives huge power. The phrase giant killer that actor Henry Goodman mentions refers to the Olivier's capacity to trip up even the most experienced directors. Goodman has appeared there in Guys and Dolls, Gorky's Summer Folk, and as Shylock in The Merchant of Venice. It can be a notoriously difficult theater to master due to its large size and acoustics. There's a balance and that's where the whole microphoning thing can, becomes a real problem. I, I hate it. In the late 90s, in what was now the Royal National Theatre, artistic director Trevor Nunn staged several award-winning revivals in the Olivier, but he was forced to defend his decision to have actors wear body microphones. There were complaints from one very prominent newspaper and some of the actors. He just said, look, um, it's, it's to do with, it's not a, a dismissal of your skills and talents as individuals, it's to do with the acoustic of the building. Um, in that sense, he was very nice to us, and I think he shouldn't, he should have been tougher with us, actually. And uh, in the sense that it's our responsibility to make sure that we're heard, and that we sound as if we can just be conversational. Some people do struggle. Um, now, I think, frankly, with, with clever people, they do it much more subtly. And it's going on, but you would never know it. Whereas in those early days, it, it, we, we, you know, they were still not quite 
And I, I, I would literally take off my mic and not use it, being Merchant of Venice. During the show? Yeah. yeah. But I think they've now become much more sophisticated about it. And you don't have to walk around with battery packs and all that, like I do in the West End musicals. And that, I think, is, is very important. The highly regarded stage and film director Nicholas Heitner has been named as the next head of the Royal National Theatre in London. He will be taking up what many regard as the most important job in British theatre. Our arts correspondent Rebecca Jones reports. Nicholas Heitner is probably best known for directing The Madness of George III, first on stage and then on screen. His film version was nominated for four Oscars. He's also directed the musicals Miss Saigon and Carousel, and his most recent work, the bawdy comedy Mother Claps Molly House, opened at the National Theatre earlier this month. But while he may be an accomplished director, Nicholas Heitner has never run a theatre company. The day he was appointed in 2001, the man who'd never run a theatre company spoke to Mark Lawson on Radio 4's Front Row. Nicholas Heitner, on your contract it will say Royal National Theatre. Now, they're all quite interesting words, those. They could mean almost anything. What do they mean to you, those words? Royal means very little, to be honest, and um, I don't intend to be exploring it in any great depth. National's very interesting. Uh, I think, to a large degree, our job at the National Theatre is to discover what national now means... Uh, there is, I think, now very little consensus as to what national identity is. I think over the last 10 years, it's been clear that there are generations, new generations, new communities, out of which a tremendous amount of life and energy is coming. And I would love all that life and energy on our stages. I'd love to be exploring all corners of our nation, holding up the mirror to the nation and finding all sorts of stuff that, um, that 20 years ago maybe you wouldn't have found because we had a much more homogeneous idea of what we were. I think the National's mission, really, is to discover what national means. People look inevitably at what you've done in the theatre. Now, by coincidence, you've got Mark Ravenhill's Mother Claps Molly House on. Now, that's a bold play, a shocking play for some of the National Theatre audience. Well, it's not a remotely shocking play to the generation and the uh, community out of which it comes. Nicholas Heitner was determined to widen the theatre's audience. He introduced Sunday performances and, right at the start of his tenure, launched £10 tickets, which brought thousands of people to the National for the first time, to see productions such as Heitner's own Henry V. Staged in 2003, it had a modern-day setting and was rehearsed during the Iraq War. Audiences could not miss parallels between Shakespeare's action and the real events they'd just watched on TV news bulletins. The leading man had yet to play Mickey Bricks in Hustle. Heitner was asked about his casting on Radio 3's Night Waves. With Henry V, was the decision to cast Adrian Lester, a black actor, as Henry taken at the same time as the decision to do the play? Yeah, it wasn't to do with Adrian being black, it was to do with Adrian being Good an absolutely wonderful actor. Interesting. It says something interesting about the society we now are. As opposed to the society we once were. In 1964, Laurence Olivier darkened his skin from head to toe with makeup to play Othello at the Old Vic and gave one of his most famous performances. In 1980, another white actor, Paul Schofield, also played the Moor of Venice. As society changed, so did the national. Gradually, casts have come to reflect more accurately the British population. 
but choosing a black or Asian actor for King Henry, a role that some theatre-goers might expect to see being played by a white performer, was still, in 2003, considered worthy of comment. Such considerations never worried Nicholas Heitner. In 1992, he directed restoration comedy The Recruiting Officer in The Olivier. He cast Patterson Joseph as Mr Worthy, a gentleman of Shropshire, a decision, the actor recalls, which troubled one member of the audience. My first real inkling that anything was, was stirring was um, the first preview where we all came down to Gladhand, the uh, sponsors. We came into the reception area, which was up in one of the foyers, and a, f a fella walked up to me and, uh, and he, was, he was very positive, really enjoyed the show, and then he said, I mean, there are, you know, there are some things that I, I, I thought were a bit uh, strange. For instance, um, black people, I mean, you know. And he felt quite bold, you know, because we were being very friendly. He was quite bold and he said, you know, I, I don't think there were, there were black people in England at that time, so, you know. And I said, well, um, did, you, did you know that uh, in 18th century London there were at least um, 22,000 black people living in, in London alone? And he went, no, I didn't know that. That's extraordinary. Yes, but they would have most have been servants. I said, yeah, no, there were, but some of them, some of them, not very many, were in the gentry. Oh, oh, I, oh, I didn't know that. But anyway, I mean, the play itself, I mean, it wouldn't really have had a, you know, I mean, they wouldn't be black. And I said, well, you know, this is not documentary. If it was a documentary, then everybody would have to, um, I don't know, smell. The audience is suspending their disbelief about all sorts of things. If we go that far and say it has to be absolutely verbatim as it would have been, as it would have been performed, etc., then we put theatre in a box, especially classic theatre like that. And also, you sort of denigrate the audience. You say you can't get beyond colour. You're only interested in what's on the service. But the main thing I asked him, and it was a personal thing, I said, I don't think I'd have the nerve to do it now. I said, uh, well, did you, because he didn't know, did you believe that the guy he was playing, Mr. Worthy? I said, oh, he said, no, I mean, the fellow was terrific. Of course, no, I completely believed it. I said, well, it was me. He went, no, I'm so sorry. And I said, no, it's fantastic, because that's what it's about. It's about you believing in that person on that stage on this night. So I hope that for him it was a sort of road to Damascus. I hope that he suddenly went, well, you know, throw that so out. So he had assumed you were a friend of the car? He had assumed I was a friend of because I was wigged up and, you know, costumes and everybody looks very different. But it was a sort of wonderful meeting. I mean, he could, I could, he could have met anybody in the room, but he, met, he happened to meet, to, meet, to meet me and a couple of others. So that, for me, was about the only um, sort of intimation that perhaps people were looking in that way. But, it, you know, I, I, I just got on with doing the show as best I could. Later that year, in Carousel, Heitner cast black actor Clive Rowe as New England fisherman Enoch Snow. Former Private Eye editor Richard Ingrams fumed. Apart from its utter absurdity, such politically correct recasting is surely an insult to Rogers and Hammerstein. One critic suggested that putting Rowe in the role was a flabbergastingly racist joke. Here's Clive Rowe himself. I might have smiled once or twice at being called Mr Snow, but apart from that, it never crossed my mind. Um, there was a point in the first week when the reviews were starting to come out where Nick came and found me during one of my warm-ups and said, look, there's all these things happening in the papers. 
do you want to make a statement? Do you want to say something to the papers? Do you feel that you need to do that? And I just said, no, I don't, because it's a vacuous argument. If I, all I would be doing would be fueling more people talking about absolute nonsense. And it is nonsense, you know. Why would I want to go into the national papers to say something which I think is absolutely and utterly obvious to any right-minded person in this business? We work in fantasy. We work in a realm of fantasy, and if we're going to be racially cited in a realm of fantasy where anything is absolute, anything is possible, then what chance do we stand anywhere else? If in theatre you have to start saying, he's black, she's Chinese, she's not male, she's... We're, we're screwed. What Rowe didn't realise was that Heitner had stood up to the Rogers and Hammerstein estate on this point. After a flurry of correspondence, he flew to New York and the estate backed down. Had Rowe's casting been vetoed, we'd have been deprived of hearing him as Mr Snow. Leave me with my shattered dreams. They're all I have left. Memories of what didn't happen. Geraniums in the window. Hydrangeas on the lawn. And breakfast in the kitchen. In the timid pink dawn. And you to blow me kisses when I had it for the sea. We might have been a happy pair of lovers, mightn't have we. After Carousel, two more Rogers and Hammerstein musicals were triumphantly revived at the National, both directed by Trevor Nunn. South Pacific and Oklahoma in which an Australian newcomer called Hugh Jackman played a cowboy and was greeted by the Sunday Times as a burly song-and-dance man who looks like Mr Darcy with better teeth and bigger muscles. A new play by Alan Bennett, his first at the National Theatre since the madness of George III 12 years ago, was always going to be a hot ticket. But moments before the History Boys was due to open last night, a backstage electrical circuit board proved even hotter, setting fire to the rigging and causing the safety sprinklers to flood the Littleton stage. Actors and crew grabbed towels and mops and the curtain lifted an hour late. Can we have somebody on each door, please? Yes, 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 I'm not, I don't mean you. Fire? or Mr Jet, as it's known in this theatre, is always a worry. For the purposes of today's fire drill, Mr Jet is on stage. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we're unable to continue with this performance, and we must ask you to leave the building as quickly and as quietly as possible. Do not stop to collect your coats or bags or cars from the car park. Do not use the lifts. Go straight out onto the terraces and assemble by the riverfront, keeping well clear of the building. The ushers will tell you when you may re-enter. They'll now show you the way out. Thank you. This way out. This way out. This way out. Thank you very much. Part two from the circle. All the way over the circle. Thank you very much. The house is now open. Thank you. That was house manager Marnie Meakin drilling her staff back in 1982. Now, from front of house to back, with former stage manager Rosie Beatty to find the highly skilled craftspeople who make sure everything looks right on stage. They inhabit cramped rooms or cavernous workshops off the building's numerous corridors. First up, the people who do running repairs on wardrobe and costumes. Hello. We just come in off the stairwell. We're in the Littleton uh, running wardrobe, which has a lot of garment rails with all of the Littleton shows yeah. being looked after in here. A couple of industrial strength uh, ironing boards. Lots, <laughs> lots of very elegant bankers' shirts needing yeah, to be looked after. 
But, you know, people don't think of that, do they? When they come to see a show, you wouldn't think, oh, my God, all those shirts that have to be washed and ironed every day. But there's a heck of a lot of extra work that goes on. OK. <laughs> For the power of yes, David Hare's drama about the financial crisis, wardrobe were ironing 70 shirts a night. Like a lot of people here, they have no real daylight. We bypass the armoury, which is open by appointment only. It's kept locked at all times to make sure its 400 replica firearms are secure. Now we'll see if we can get in here to the prop workshop. Taped. Here, carpenters and upholsterers work on several shows simultaneously. Oh, look. <laughs> so, yes, this is the, the, the making part, and um, wonderful things come out of here. I always sort of thought that. <laughs> the prop workshop is like air traffic control, guiding each new prop and each new show into a landing slot on one of the three stages. So you come out of props and uh, walk about 10 feet to your left, you come into the paint frame. The paint frame is permeated by the smell of glue, paint, polish and wood shavings. Which is a real aircraft hangar-like uh, space. I wonder if this is the biggest single space, as it were, backstage. It feels bigger it than is, the rehearsal room. Large sets are prepared here. A typical show in the Littleton is allocated 1,100 hours of painting and spraying. Bang on cue. That's the set. The model. Not all work is done in-house. Sometimes specialist prop and puppet makers work with the national staff. Picture the scene. There's a bucket, four figures and a young foal on stage. Three of the figures are manipulating the foal, which has been carefully handcrafted by soaking, bending and binding cane. It has stumbled, blinking, ears twitching, from a puppet workshop in Cape Town, South Africa. His flanks, hides and sinews are built of steel, leather and aircraft cables. This is Warhorse, or Joey to his friends. It's not really a horse. It's meant to just look like a horse and behave like a horse. Adrian Kohler from Handspring Puppet Company helped develop and create the incredibly lifelike equine characters for Warhorse in 2007. The first thing we were trying out was whether two actors could support a rider. We made two backpacks and put a ladder between them and got our next-door neighbour's daughter to come and sit on the ladder uh, two metres in the air. She was very scared, but we discovered that it actually was possible. And then we built the horse around that. And then there's a third person who works from the outside, controlling the head and neck of the horse. Cantering and galloping on the stage uh, was very difficult. And so what we do in this theatre is we put other people manipulating the hooves. The effect of the skin with the lights means that you sometimes see right through the horse. It gives them a kind of a dreamlike quality. 
And in the play, sometimes these horses die. The horse is manipulated by three people. They are his life force. So he falls over and they walk away. His life force leaves him. Warhorse, adapted from the novel for children by Michael Morpurgo, was the story of Joey, purchased by the army for service in World War I. The puppeteers did their research. We talked to a lot of horse people. We went to the King's Troop in St John's Wood where they pull cannons as part of their daily work. Mm-hmm. And we were interested really in whether the horses have friendships with one another. And they described a situation where one horse pulling a cart had, had a bad accident and died in a parade. And the horses that lived on either side of that horse in the stables didn't eat for five days. Mm-hmm. So they were mourning the loss of their friend. Mm-hmm. And that was quite important for us when you're developing a horse in a play mm-hmm. that doesn't speak. You know, how do they have relationships? Do they have friendships? Do they care about one another? And clearly they do. On several notable occasions, plays have sometimes ended up on screen. Warhorse is one example. Director Steven Spielberg saw it when it transferred to the West End. Theatre is a live medium, entirely different to cinema. But that changed when, in 2009, Nicholas Heitner proudly announced... The National Theatre would be coming soon to a cinema near you. This is very much a pilot scheme. We very much want to get what we do out over the whole country. We aim over a six or nine month period to broadcast live to cinemas on um, selected nights for productions to see how they go. What I think this will do is capture exactly the excitement of live performance, allow the cinema audience to share in it and to share it with the rest of the cinema audience. It won't have the kind of solitary sterility of a television broadcast. And this has not been tried before uh, in any big way. We hope it will allow an audience over the whole country to be at the National Theatre. The scheme is called NT Live, and Michelle Terry appearing in All's Well That Ends Well and, later, The Comedy of Errors, was one of the first actors to take part. I was, as I think everybody was, wary and sceptical and thought, you know, is this the future of theatre? Is theatre now going to be just an extension of film? How are we going to maintain what is inherently theatrical and just pretend the cameras aren't there? And this is what you're told and then you go out into the rehearsal and there's a big track right round the front of the stores and the first five rows have been removed and there's a, a big crane camera in the middle and you sort of go, okay, I can't possibly do what I've always done because I can't deliver a soliloquy and meet someone's eye in the front row and I can't see the middle of the stores. And then every time you come on stage, they're faffing around with you, which you expect on a television set and you find ways to cope with it, um, but it's not something that you expect in the wings of the Olivier. So. It wasn't just do what you've always done and we'll work around you. It it was something very different. Hello and welcome to the National Theatre in London. This is our live broadcast. At the start of an NT Live broadcast, audiences are told, in a relaxed way, what to expect from the performance. What you're seeing now is going out live, or almost live, to around 700 cinemas in 22 countries across the world. 
The things that happen before the play begins play such an important part, making the audience feel like they are as responsible for this evening going well as what's happening on stage. Because the audience in the theatre? In the theatre, yeah. There is a boundary to cross which you don't necessarily have on a normal, normal night. What was interesting with Comedy of Errors, this was a, a set that was filmic in proportions. It was epic. Some nights we matched the set, some nights we didn't. But on the night we did NT Live, the adrenaline surging through our bones, the amount that the, the audience have so wanted this to be a good evening, that in that room we all took responsibility for this being a brilliant event. And it was the best show that we ever did. NT Live continues to pull in the crowds. Over a million people have now watched these broadcasts, and there are thank you letters in the Nationals' files from theatre-goers all over the world. Hearing the feedback from people and really, truly believing that this was never going to undermine theatre, this was only serving to make theatre accessible to people that couldn't get there, you suddenly realise what this means, and it is only serving to enhance it. A bunk up in Majorca, see? Sometimes being a liar works. And with Dolly here, you gotta say, there's bound to be some fireworks. I clocked on early, clocked off late, didn't eat till two. I walked the walk and talked the talk and then I fell for you. A bloody northerner. It's been a day of minor catastrophe. It's been a day of sink or swim. I've done a lot of groveling on my knees. I better go and shave my legs because I'm off to spin with him. Yesterday seems like last week. Last week seems like last year. But tomorrow looks good from here, oh yeah. Tomorrow looks good from here. I've been incognito and lying low. I've been dressed up as a man. There were times I thought you would never show. But I got you, Governor. James Corden and the cast of hit comedy One Man, Two Governors. The show opened in 2011. Now, early 2013 and the Cottesloe Theatre closes for a much-needed overhaul, funded by the theatre's largest-ever private donation. The businessman behind the company that bankrolled its successful £10 ticket scheme has offered up £10 million for its redevelopment. In recognition, the theatre will reopen with a different name, The Dorfman. The Cottesloe closed once before, in 1985, under very different circumstances, but these also involved money. 
Sir Peter Hall, director of the National Theatre Complex, is fulfilling his threat to close the Cottesloe Theatre. It goes dark at the end of April. He will also be sacking a hundred staff, stopping all regional tours and all foyer activities that can't pay for themselves. His dramatic announcement this afternoon has come about as a result of the 1.9% Arts Council increase in its grant to the National, effectively a considerable cut in real terms of the £6.5 million budget. Our arts correspondent John Parry asked Sir Peter how serious the financial plight of the National had become. Very serious. We're a million short the next year. That is the result of the governments and the Arts Council squeezing us for the last five years by giving us grants which are less than inflation. We warned them in 82 that this day would come, and it's come. We've managed to keep afloat in the meantime by, by continually cutting our costs, expanding our income, getting private sponsorship. But we've got to a point now where we cannot make up that million. I don't myself believe that the Cottesloe need have closed. This is, of course, an argument between me and Sir Peter Hall. I think he's a great director, but I think that is a very, very labour-intensive outfit, and the thing to do would be to cut some costs. Of course, so the Arts Minister, Lord Gowrie, is, is fairly critical of you personally. Uh, he criticises you for not going out and, and getting enough sponsorship. Well, can I answer uh, that? Because I thought that was extremely wrong-headed of him, and he was factually wrong. He doesn't know his facts, so he can criticise me, but I shall criticise him. The chairman of the Arts Council, Sir William Rees-Mogg, reacted strongly today to Sir Peter Hall's remarks. People believe that the right way to get money out of the government is to attack them hysterically. That's the Peter Hall view, as far as I can make out. I find screaming and yelling basically a very self-indulgent activity. It's quite sobering to hear how vicious the arts funding debate became in the 1980s and to contrast the distinct approaches taken by individual artistic directors, Peter Hall, Richard Eyre and Nicholas Heitner, as the political climate changed. You have to fight and you don't get anywhere by being quiet or not pushing your case. The old days of having a private word in the corridors of power and knowing somebody, I mean, that's all over. You, you have to shout in the marketplace. In recent months, the cries of dismay from arts organisations in this country have become louder than I can ever remember them, and what's more, they seem to have been virtually unanimous cries. It's rather as though the arts in this country were leaving one era of subsidy and moving into another and finding the transition a painful process. Richard Eyre. I'm a different generation to Peter. I enjoyed the growth in the liberal consensus that the arts should have increasing subsidy. And then we've seen, with an economic decline in the country, we've seen that whole, the whole notion of subsidy called in question. Nicholas Heitner. I'm always going to say and do, firstly, what I believe, but also what I believe will be most constructive. I happen to believe that most of the people that I deal with on a day-to-day -day basis, the Arts Council, even DCMS, uh, are essentially on our side. I therefore don't want, in discussing the current subsidy situation, needlessly to put myself in, a, in an oppositional place. It's the taxpayer's money. It is to the taxpayer, therefore, that we have to be responsible. In 2009, after the recession had hit, Heitner remained upbeat. We've just had six months which have been as successful as anything we've ever done. We've played 93% the last six months. 
We have yet to see any drop-off in our box office, quite the contrary. Compare again two years later. The National had suffered a substantial cut in its funding from Arts Council England. Luckily, it had Warhorse and One Man Two Governors, both playing to packed houses after transferring to the West End. On Radio 4's front row, Mark Lawson asked Heitner to imagine a scenario without that unexpected extra revenue. The alternative history is pretty grim. I'm not quite sure what we'd be doing. You can only work on the basis that you do the things you think to be good. As you know, there are politicians who say, well, if they can make all that money from Warhorse and um, now one man, two governors, they don't need all this money from the public. However much it cuts, they're going to make it up somehow. What we get from Warhorse and one man, two governors covers the gap left by the cut in funding. Uh, there's a little bit extra, which we plough back into the building. We always do. The purpose of this place is not to go out and make pots of money. The purpose is to engage as many people as possible in the widest spread of theatre, comic and tragic, literary and non-literary, old and new, establishment and anti-establishment. That kind of work uh, takes a degree of support. You know, we get just we get now a, a little over a quarter of our revenue from the state. Reduce that much further, you will be undermining the basis on on which this place works um, and, you know, you would be undermining an entire performing arts infrastructure which, politically, you could argue might be a good idea. I think, self-evidently, economically, it wouldn't be. You might, out of some sense of misguided purity, think that nothing's worth doing unless there is um, a nakedly profitable bottom line, but I think... <laughs> That's not got us very far over the last uh, 20 years. Fifty years since the National was created, I've tried to bring to life just a few scenes from its history. We've heard many of the big names associated with the theatre, none more celebrated than its founding artistic director, Laurence Olivier. And here we Stage are. right of the Olivier. You are indeed. I stood with Rosie Beatty in the auditorium that bears Olivier's name. Shall we just walk over to the other side? We've also heard about some of the lesser-known characters who have a place of honour on the same stage. And now we're in the front corner. It's a brass plaque yes. uh, which says Michael Bryant, 1928 to 2002, actor and gentleman. He has a unique place in the acting history of the National in its home on the South Bank because he more or less made it his permanent home, didn't he? Indeed he did, yes. Uh, he was one of the people who brought the real company feeling to the National Theatre. Um, he wasn't a star. Yes, he did. He was here and he was the only person, you know, if he wasn't here to do a show for several months, he was always allowed to keep his dressing room. That was for him. At the National, Michael Bryant played Ina Barbas, Iago and Prospero, 
He played Lenin and a Labour MP. He played Julius Caesar in The Romans in Britain and Badger in The Wind in the Willows. He just had a wonderful knack of being able to help, in particular, the younger members of the company. Uh, he could equally be quite wicked at times. I can remember standing in this prompt corner here when we were doing Sisterly Feelings, played by Alan Aitbourne years ago. There was a mound which was the set for Sisterly Feelings and I would be standing here waiting to be given the okay from front of house, watching puffs and puffs of smoke appearing behind the mound. Michael Bryant, <laughs> I used to signal to him and, you know, try and tell him off from a distance because I knew I couldn't get round there to do anything physical about it in time. And, of course, he would just sit there with a big grin on his face, puffing away and stick two fingers up at me. <laughs> there are many stories there are many, uh, about him. There are him. many, but he was uh, a very, very special part of, of the National Theatre and I think always will be. And he, he was the permanent company. The National yes, has never was. had a permanent company nope. since Laurence Olivier nope. left and there have been ensembles gathered for particular seasons. There has been a great deal of cross-casting of actors appearing in a Littleton show and a, a Cottesloe show at the same time, but there has not been a permanent company. And I think perhaps that's why Michael Bryant's career stands out yes. in such an exceptional way, because he was a permanent company of one. Yeah, he was. You're absolutely right. If we were to walk right from this far upstage area and come down, how far would we have to go before reaching what is known as the Michael Bryant spot? Well, I was just going to mention that. So we would have to go dead centre, which probably with that great big hole in the floor we shouldn't do. <laughs> Despite the tricky acoustics, from this spot, actors are sure to be heard by all 1,100 people in the audience. But that is it. You are a surprisingly long way upstage i'd say you're you're 20 paces from the front row of the Absolutely. stalls and it's for being heard so that you don't have to yell which was what michael knew very quickly and it's also visually i mean it is a difficult theater for people to play standing here in the olivier when it's empty of uh, spectators reminds one of the occasion when lord olivier came in especially ahead of the royal opening in 1976 because Olivier had never acted in the Olivier much though Peter Hall had tried to bring him back but he knew that he was going to have to give a speech and he came in very early in the morning stood where Rosie Beattie and I are standing in the empty Olivier auditorium and practiced he was trying to find uh, the spot and he had his regular stage manager Diana Boddington up around various points of the auditorium and she would call out yes no yes i've got you not quite as olivier altered the volume and and pitch of his yes, voice yes. because he was he was marking his spot he'd come in completely unannounced mm. but uh, a number of people uh, found out about it and and saw it as a great mark yeah. of his professionalism yeah, absolutely and a warm warm welcome for sir as he's still affectionately known in this theater your majesty your royal highness my lords ladies and gentlemen 
It is an outsized pearl of British understatement to say that I am happy to welcome you at this moment in this place. opening night, Laurence Olivier spoke of its bright future, as did Peter Hall. I believe whatever the difficulties now, we have begun an adventure which will carry this theatre through many decades, indeed perhaps many centuries, for you will observe that it is built of very thick concrete. <laughs> the fact that this building is now here and has been dreamt of and longed for for 150 years, is a guarantee that in the future, the British people will always take the theater seriously because this building is here. And the British people will benefit from this building enormously because the more energy that is put into the work that is done here, the more energy will flow out into all the rest of the theater all over the country. To those who will follow, I wish joy eternal. The National Theatre at 50 was written and presented by Daniel Rosenthal and it was a testbed production for BBC Radio 4 Extra. The producer is Tamsin Hughes.